Interesting, a moment ago we sang, uh, I sought the Lord and he answered. I'd like to lead you in a different kind of prayer this morning. Uh, have you ever been in a church when we had a lament? I'd like to lead you through a lament when we uh, express our sorrows to God over the conditions that are around us. So let me, let me lead you in this. It's not going to be up behind me. You're just going to have to listen and, and bear with me for a minute. Bow your heads, if you will. Good morning, Lord. Today we come before you in a spirit of lament. Beginning last weekend, we began to watch newsreels of the massacre of hundreds and now thousands of people simply because they are Jews. We lament over such great loss. We lament that we live in a world capable of such evil. We know that governments are charged with protecting their citizens. Yet we lament again that many Palestinians who are not Hamas may be caught in this response because they live in a region that treats them as human shields. We lament that in too many places around the world, hatred of Jews is rising. Through lament, we express our frustration and disgust to you, our God and our defender. But Lord, we do more than lament today. We appeal. We appeal to you and to your throne. We appeal to you, asking you to protect those who are children of Abraham. We appeal to you to provide a way out for non-combatants caught in the crossfire. We appeal to you to bring about a lasting and workable peace in the Middle East and throughout the world. We appeal to you to remove leaders who plot or who praise evil acts. We appeal to you to raise up leaders at every level who will act with charity and character. And Lord, we ask, we ask you to pour out wisdom and courage upon our nation's leaders from the party we may support and on those from the party we may not support. We ask you to pour out mercy and healing on our own members who are suffering today. We ask you to pour out your healing presence into the lives of Tom and Jean and Mary Lou and Sig and Ginny and John and Peter. We ask you to pour out your spirit on the people of North River Church that our children will develop deep faith and character, that our friends and neighbors will embrace the saving grace of Jesus, that you will continue to change and transform each of us in ways that cause us to think, act, lead, and love like Jesus. And we ask all of this in the name of your Son, our Lord, Jesus. Amen. I'm going to read this morning from Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Uh, this may seem like a familiar passage for many of you. I was remarking to a group of friends at a gathering on uh, Friday night that I think that I have preached from this passage every year that I've been at North River. So for some of you who've been around over a long time, this might be the 34th time or more that you've heard me preach from Luke 15, but I have found something new for me every time we've done this. It is one of those amazing passages that lives in new ways, and so I hope that there's something new for you today as well. <clears throat> Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons, 
The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country where he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, My father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. But you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered his property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Growing up in a stable, traditional family in Amarillo, Texas, Judd Wilhite got his first high in the seventh grade when some friends passed around a marijuana joint during a lunch break outside his junior high school. And one thing led to another. Pot and booze led to speed and cocaine. By the time he was 13, he was shooting up meth. Soon he was addicted to anything and everything, chasing highs. He says that the next four years of his life, there wasn't a day when he didn't get high. Each time, he was trying to recapture that feeling of the very first high. And it took him farther and farther away from the people who loved him. When he was 17, he nearly died from an overdose. He woke up on the floor, his heart racing, his body soaked in sweat, his mind disoriented, slowly regaining consciousness. He wasn't sure where he was. As he stood in front of a mirror, he barely recognized himself behind the sunken eyes. After the cocktail of drugs he had consumed, he wasn't sure why he was still alive. So what did he do? He found the stash of drugs that he had left and plunged the needle under his skin once again. 
Over the next few weeks, he began to contemplate where his life was heading. He later realized he was on a path that led to one of three options, death, jail, or insanity. Knowing he needed help, on one of those days, he dropped to his knees and he called out to God. He said, Lord, help me. I can't do this on my own. I need you. Nothing changed instantly, but God responded. Judd had this sense of God saying somehow in a whisper, welcome home. And for the first time, there was just a smidgen of hope. The next morning, he drove down the highway, and all of his drug paraphernalia was laid out on the passenger seat next to him. And he felt God give him the strength to roll down the window, and as he was speeding down the highway, to throw all the drugs out the window, and they were gone. He not only asked God for help, he asked him to show up in his life. And so one Sunday, he wandered into a church, the church where his parents had brought him when he was a kid, and he found a group that met in a back room. This wasn't the church's official youth group, but rather the young adults who were deemed to be the oddballs, the ones who didn't fit into any group. They didn't probe or ask Judd details about his story, but they listened to him, and they accepted him where he was, and then they prayed for him and sometimes talked him off the ledge. And in that group, Judge experienced for the first time what he called church. That group and the church at large became a family to him. Later on, as Judge moved on in life, he prayed that God would allow him to be a part of a church that was filled with the same kind of people that had rescued him. Fast forward. Today, Judge, Judd is the senior pastor of Central Christian Church in Henderson, Nevada, literally a stone's throw from Las Vegas. When Lee Strobel interviewed him, he noticed that on Judd's wall, it's dominated by a large horizontal po- poster that has a picture of the Las Vegas Strip. And at the top, in big, bold letters, it says, Grace City. Most people don't think of Las Vegas that way. And then emblazoned on the bottom of that long horizontal poster are the words from Romans 5.20, which says, Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Central Church is located, appropriately, on New Beginnings Drive. I love that. But it bills itself as, quote, a church where it's okay to not be okay. I don't know about you, but I like that phrase. A church where it's okay to not be okay. Here's the point of telling you that story. When grace is loosed, it draws the hurting and often offends the faithful. Let me say that again, because I know I'm going I'm to rankle somebody's expectations here. When grace is really loosed, when grace is really taught, when it really gets out in a congregation, it draws the hurting And it often offends the faithful. Let's explore that a bit. Our topic this morning is grace that seeks and finds. It's found in one of the most well-loved parables that come from Jesus. This is part five in this first fall series that we're calling Changed by Grace. And in this series, each week, we've been either looking at theological explanations about grace or grace stories that center around people whose lives have been radically changed by an encounter with Jesus or with the grace of God. 
And from this combination, my hope is that we will all see how encounters with the grace of God in Jesus can change the trajectory and the outcome of our lives. So here we go. Welcome to North River today. I love seeing all of you here in our Pembroke Worship Center. I love the the worship this morning. Even as we sang that new song, it was interesting to see how quickly you caught on. And welcome to those of you who are watching from home or or on the road somewhere. Thank you for being a part of all of this. Uh, I want to invite you to do more than watch, though. I want to invite you to welcome a friend to either watch with you or to come here to North River and Pembroke with you. And think about the people in your life who need to hear about the grace of God. This is part five in this series, and the next two weeks, Todd and then Christy are going to take the the anchor legs of, of this series and bring it home as we really dive in deeper about grace. Each week, there's a question that I try to raise, and here's today's question. Do we really love God's grace? Do we really love God's grace or do we we resist God's grace? When you look at this well-loved parable, you see two reactions to it. Some who bristle at what Jesus was teaching and some who draw in closer. So let me walk you through a couple of observations from this marvelous story that Jesus tells. We're talking about grace that seeks and finds and we find that we're still learning from this wonderful parable. Here's the first observation. This parable was always about two sons, not just one, about two sons. Verse 11 starts off, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. When I was growing up, we were taught that this was called the parable of the prodigal son. So the focus was always on the son who walked away into what the Bible calls wild living. I've always wondered exactly what Jesus meant by that. You, you can kind of fill in the blanks. Some of you have been there. You've been there for a long time, and that's what drove you to your, your knees, where you finally found Jesus for real. By telling the father that he wants his share of this, the estate, he was saying a number of things. Dad, I don't want to wait until you die for my share to come to me. Uh, you know, I want it now, even if breaking things up harms the estate overall. This would be considered a huge insult in the ancient world where it was expected that the young revere their elders. This guy didn't. It was also a rejection of the elder brother and the system of progenitor. Progenitor was where the eldest son would inherit the lion's share of the estate. Usually that meant about two-thirds, leaving the rest to be divided among other siblings. So if the younger son left, then the the older son would be left spending years toiling and working for and then with his dad, and there would be no one else to share the load. When the younger son leaves, not only is there a sense of loss by the father, but there's this huge gap that grows between the two sons. And you kind of feel it as the story expands. As Jesus tells this parable, the younger son goes to a faraway country. And there he enjoys the high life, the fast lane, until the money runs out. But the high life doesn't last. And when the money is gone, a famine hits, and it hits hard. He's alone. He doesn't have any real skills or lasting connections. The only job he can find is feeding pigs, and he's so hungry that he longs for the pig's food. 
It's amazing how Jesus takes us that far, that deeply into the story in only a few short verses. Meanwhile, the elder son stays home working for their father. While the parable doesn't explicitly say this, we come to see that he was bitter. He resented the younger brother's carefree ways and choices. He stays out of mere obligation, not out of love for the father. And as the father searches the horizon every night for his younger son, the elder son becomes less and less and less like the father. Tim Keller noted that church-going people and unchurched people often hear this story in different ways. The church crowd hears this story and rejoices that the younger man comes to his senses. That's literally the phrase that Jesus used. When he came to his senses. We wince, though, at his wild living and where he ends up. And we revel in the fact that he eventually comes home and that he's united with his father. The unchurched crowd hears a different story. The unchurched crowd hears this description of the elder son and thinks, who wants to be like this guy? He does all the right things and he ends up bitter and full of resentment. If I had to choose between one or the other, I know which one I'd choose. I'll choose the guy who had fun. I'd rather be like the younger brother. At least he's not a bore. This guy really lives. And so we need to remember that this is a parable about two sons told by Jesus for a reason because there are two different ways of looking at this. There's one son who misses the father's heart through his destructive life choices. And then there's the second son who misses the father's heart through an unforgiving, ungracious heart. So this is a parable that was always about two sons from the very start, from the very first time Jesus told it. Here's the second observation. God is the ultimate seeker. Verse 20. Speaking of the younger son coming to his senses, it says, So he got up and went to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Have you ever read through this story or heard it read to you and you wondered, how did the father happen to see the son that day? The picture that comes to mind for me is of a parent who never gave up. Day after day, searching the horizon for signs of the one child who wandered away. Can't you picture this dad just looking every day at the sunset and hoping that he'll see the form of his son coming at the end of the day after a long journey and and maybe making his way home? This father-son-parent-child dynamic is part of the the genius of Jesus' parable. I remember years ago, I taught this parable here at North River one day, and a friend of ours who's not a churchgoer was coming here for a service in order to meet us afterward for lunch. And during that service, as I unfolded the parable, I described Jesus as our rabbi. Our rabbi told this parable. When I joined the lunch gathering late, because I was here greeting people and in a couple of conversations, and everybody else got to the restaurant before me, I sat down next to this particular guy, and he grabbed my arm. 
He said, what an amazing story that was. I couldn't help but think about my relationship with my own father and then my relationship with my sons. Who was that rabbi? (laughs) He had no idea that we were actually talking about Jesus. Well, Jesus intended us to put ourselves right in the middle of this parable. That's why he started teaching that day by saying, suppose one of you. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Jesus knew that he was tapping into common experiences and heartbreaks that many of us, even most of us, carry. He wants us to put ourselves right in the middle of the parable even today. And when we do, we discover God as the ultimate seeker. Oh yes, the younger son was seeking a way to come home. The younger son was seeking a way to come back to his father. Clearly, the younger son was hoping that he could just be one of the hired servants that would be so much better than where he'd ended up. But the high point of the drama created by Jesus is when the father runs to his son. Elderly, wealthy Jewish men of that time didn't do something like that. It was undignified. The son wasn't sure he'd be welcomed back. The son is practicing his pitch, hoping to be received as a servant in the household. He'll take any role just to be treated well after the humiliation that he'd been through. And remember, Jesus told three parables that day. First, he told about the shepherd who goes after the one lost sheep and celebrates Then he told about the woman who tears apart her home looking for the one lost coin. Perhaps it was part of her dowry. And she'll tear apart everything till she finds that one coin. Both of them search and celebrate when the lost item is found. And now the father sees these two sons going in different ways and this completes the trilogy about finding and celebrating when the son who had been lost and feared for dead comes home. On Wednesday night, Boston's Channel 5 news station carried a story of a group of high school students from Beaver Country Day School in Newton. They had been trapped in Israel when the attacks happened and the airline shut down and they finally arrived home. They They had to get outside of the country to go to another country where they could find an airline that would finally send them back to the U.S. and back to Boston. It was powerfully touching. Students burying their faces and their tears in mom and dad's hugs. Parents expressing their overwhelming relief that their teens that they were worried about that would be caught in this awfulness were finally home safe. Every past disagreement or argument that they might have had was forgotten in that moment, just to be home, just to have them home. And Jesus is telling us this is the way it is with God. This is what Jesus is unveiling for us, that God the Father leads the celebration with joy and tears and feasting. When those who have wandered away come home, He wants all who have wandered spiritually, morally, or ethically to come home to his embrace. And he wants us all to then join in the celebration. Here's the third thought. This parable was always about two sons, 
we learn that God is the ultimate seeker. And this kind of grace sometimes makes us squirm. Isn't that a great word, squirm? When you, when you hear that word, what does it mean? You shift uncomfortably in your seat. You're, you're awkward. You're, you're in a place you didn't want to be. It makes us squirm. Notice verse 28. It says, The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But you know who squirmed the most that day? Before telling the parable, all the way back in the first two verses of this chapter, Jesus describes, or, or Luke describes for us, how the, the tax collectors and the people who were known to be sinners were gathering around Jesus. They wanted to hear Jesus teach. They wanted to hear stories like this one. And as they did, it says that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law grumbled, and they were saying to themselves, who is this guy that he eats with all these lowlifes, the riffraff of society? Remember Judd Wilhite's church in Las Vegas that I started by telling you about? They build themselves as a church where it's okay to, be, to not be okay. And sometimes the stories there are rather messy. In his interview with Lee Strobel, Judd tells the story of a woman that he calls Sadie, and that's just to protect her. It's not a real name. She was a dancer in the adult entertainment world, which basically means that she was a stripper, and something started to draw her to the church. So she would dance all night and then come to church early in the morning. And at first when she came, she would find the farthest seat in the back. They had a balcony, so she would sit in the balcony and then in the back row of the balcony at first. But she kept coming, and little by little, she started moving her way closer, eventually to the front. And she soaked in everything they taught about grace and truth week after week. Lee asked, do you mean that you taught about sexual morality in the midst of Sin City? And the answer was yes. But we always pair grace and room to come in and consider truth whenever we talk about such things. Sadie examined her life. She felt the Spirit of God moving in her. She counted the cost. And then one Sunday, she walked up to Judd and told him that she wanted to become a Christian. He asked what she thought that would mean for her. And she responded that she already knew it would probably affect her career, her income would go down, and her whole life would begin to change. And Judd said, okay, what are you waiting for? And he led her in a prayer of confession and grace that day. And when they were done, she looked up and he said her face was a mess. She wore way too much mascara. And now none of it was on her eyes. All of it was dripping down her face. And all she could say was, thank you, thank you, thank you. Judd said that in a previous church where he worked, one of his assignments one day was to scrub out the baptistry that hadn't been used in a long time. He said it was a mess. It was just filled with with dirt and dust that had collected because they weren't baptizing people. They weren't seeing life change happen in that church. And it was a mess. And then he added this thought. Here in Las Vegas, we baptize about 2,000 people every year. And every one of them has a story. They are often messy, really, really messy. And every one of them matters to God. And then he adds this thought. I guess in a way I'm still an addict. I can never get enough of that kind of life change. 
Here's what this means for us at North River. There are always two kinds of prodigals. There are those who wander away, and then there are those who grumble when they come back. Neither one captures the heart of the Father until they come home and join the celebration. To the parents who are here praying for family members whose lives went off the rails, don't ever give up. Don't ever stop praying. Remember that the Lord understands this kind of grief that you carry. Remember that he's out there searching the horizons with you. He understands that absolutely unrealistic hope that you have at the end of the day. That maybe this is the day. Sometimes we have to leave the 99 and go find them. To anyone who struggles with this kind of grace, ask the Lord to give you a heart after his own heart. That's really what he wanted from the older son. Come on in and join the celebration. Standing outside is not going to impress God. It never does. To anyone here who's either watching this online or here in the room where you know you've been wandering away from God's grace and somebody dragged you in here today, come on in on your own. You're welcome here. We'll give you room to kick the tires. We'll give you room to learn We'll give you space to find God's grace. We may even throw a party for you. You'll hear a lot about grace and truth. We need both of them in heavy doses to make our way through this world. Give up that fear that God is ready to lower the boom on you. He's ready and he's waiting. And Jesus tells us through this parable, he's the one who starts the party. He's the one who celebrates most raucously. He's the one who begins the dance. Here's the big idea for today. Heaven celebrates when we join the Lord in seeking after and making room for every wanderer to come to grace. This has been the heartbeat of North River for 34 years. When we started this church, there was a very small group of us, my wife and me and eight of our friends, And what we agreed on, while we all came from different denominational backgrounds, what we agreed on was they all had friends who'd voted no on church as they knew it. And we wanted to create a safe place where our friends could hear a, a dangerous message that might change their lives and where they would be welcome to come in and ask tough questions and to push back and to learn and maybe to to discover a grace that they'd never known. We are still experimenting with how to do that right here every single week. And if you've been wondering if there's room for you, I've got news for you. There's more than room for you. We're just waiting for the party to start. I wonder if you would pray one of those dangerous prayers with me. And then this morning we've got two fantastic people who are going to celebrate with us by being baptized this morning, which which means they're openly identifying themselves as followers of Jesus. They're acknowledging that they've been changed in some way by the presence of God's Spirit. They know that He's washed away their sins. And this morning, through sign and symbol, they are saying, 
that the death and resurrection of Jesus is part of my story forevermore. Let's pray, if you dare pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for chasing after me. Hear my prayer for those who still push you away. Keep me from standing outside the celebration. Put others in my path who need your grace and truth. In Jesus' name, amen. I have two friends who are going to get baptized this morning. First is Pam Reed. Hey, Pam. How are you? Good. Thank you. Let me hold this for you. Okay. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I'm incredibly thankful to call Jesus my Savior and Lord of my life. I do thank my Father God that he raised Jesus from the dead for me, for the gift of salvation, for the gift of a personal friendship with him, for the gift of being called his daughter, and for the best gift of being loved by him. All glory and honor and praise to you, Lord, for you are so good. Take your glasses off. Based on your faith in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, it's my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right. Come on out and I'll pray for you. Let's step right here. Father, we pray for Pam today, and we ask that you will increase her confidence having publicly declared her faith and her love for you. And I pray that you'll continue to allow her to grow and to discover the gifts that you have given her and make her useful in her family, in her business, and in her community. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Zoe? And this is Zoe Nichols. Zoe is 16. She's a junior at Duxbury High School and just started her driving instructions for the first time this week. But that pales in comparison with what she's doing today. Zoe, do you believe, believe that Jesus is your Savior and your Lord? Yes. And you want everybody here to know and all your family that you want to follow him all the days of your life, whatever comes. Yes. All right, let's do this. Jesus. 
Zoe, based on your profession of faith in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, it's my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray for Zoe. Father God, we ask that you will bless Zoe and her family, and we ask that you'll use this moment of publicly identifying with you as a launching pad, that her faith will grow, that her confidence will grow, that you'll unfold your plans and your pathway for her, and that you'll make her a blessing to many in Jesus' name.